Welcome and thanks for listening and subscribing to Behind the Screen. I am your host, JT Kane, and I'm here with my good friend, Matt Corey, and we are here to talk about auditions, uh, specifically orchestra auditions, which take place behind the screen, hence the name Behind the Screen. Uh, And we hope that our discussions and our guests will be a resource and inspiration for anyone who is currently taking auditions or just really interested in the audition process. JT, why did you stumble when you said my name like that? Because I forgot to say producer. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was a little weird. It was a little weird. You didn't want to take that again and get that nice for me? No, no, it's okay, really. (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by Insight for the Blind, a very special recording studio based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where over 100 volunteers produce talking books and magazines for the blind and physically handicapped so that all may read. See for yourself at insightfortheblind.org. And thank you to Insight for the Blind, and uh, thank you, Ryan Roberts, for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Ryan, uh, first of all, congratulations. Ryan is the English horn uh, of the New York Philharmonic. Is it, is it third slash English horn? What's the, what's the actual title? The official title is English horn slash oboe of oh, the New York okay. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. You're probably, if not the, probably one of the youngest uh, New York Philharmonic members. Is that correct? I think, Ever? I think I'm number two. And it's funny because I'm pretty sure that the youngest is my friend Allison Fierst, who is our new associate principal flutist, who joined at the same time. And our birthdays are one week apart, but she has, she has me beat. So oh. I don't have the claim to fame. <laughs> oh, Allison. Well, no. congrats to her also then. But you, um, yeah, so you won that job a year ago, right? Almost yeah. like a year um, ago back in February or something like that. I think it was April 1st or April. 2nd. I yeah. believe it was April 2nd. Yeah. All right. So, and, but that position had been open for quite some time. Yes. I think it was around nine years. Um, and there had been a series of auditions. And I actually remember the last audition uh, that took place before mine, I was a freshman at Juilliard. And I remember everyone in the studio getting ready for this big English horn audition. Mm -hmm. And um, I just remember sitting in the read room beforehand and having all of my friends coming in and just, you know, taking out their reads and looking at this massive list of music and just thinking, Oh my gosh, how, how am I ever going to yeah. do this one day? <laughs> so it was kind of a, a full, full circle moment. Had you taken the audition previously? No, no, no. Or that was, was the first time? No, it was right at the beginning of my freshman year, if I remember. Okay. So I was kind of fresh out of high school. And you, so you went to Juilliard, you studied with, with Elaine, right? Yes, Elaine I studied with Elaine Dubas and Rich D'Alessio and Scott Hostetler on English Horn. Um, yeah. It's kind of the dream team. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> How many auditions, like professional auditions, had you taken before New Yorkville? Okay, I'm going to have to count because I always just guesstimate this number, but since it's an audition podcast, I'll try to be precise. <laughs> I believe four auditions before New Yorkville. Could you remember the, I mean, obviously you remember the orchestras. Yeah, so my first audition was, um, I took in my last year of undergrad. It was for Principal Oboe of the Chicago Symphony. And by some incredible stroke of luck, I made it to the finals of that audition and yeah, I, I was not ready for the job at the time. And I just, it was a big job. I was completely floored to be there. I think I was 21 when that happened. And that was, that was sort of my intro to, to audition taking. And I, mm-hmm. I do think that gave me a lot of confidence going forward, 
you know, I just would imagine some amount of validation to, to be able to say to myself, like, you know, I am on the right track and eventually this is going to, this is going to work out. The second audition I took was for principal oboe of the St. Paul chamber orchestra. And I was also lucky enough to make it to the finals of that audition, but I'm, I feel okay bragging about those two because the next two auditions, I did not make it out of the preliminary <laughs> round. So. All right. Well, so what, what was, what's the difference? Cause I am, I am always, I am fascinated by, you know, someone like yourself who gets to the finals and now wins a job with New York Philharmonic, but some auditions, they don't get past prelims. So what, what's the difference? What is it? You know, I think it's so hard to say. Obviously, there's so many factors and so many variables and things to consider when, you know, when thinking about auditions. But for me, I sort of chalk it up to two things. First of all, I think during those two auditions, they happened to be in the same week. Okay. And there were different lists. And I just was not feeling great about my reads at, you know, the usual complaint of oboists. Um, mm -hmm. We'll get into reads a little later. Right. <laughs> Stay tuned for the fun. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just, I sort of felt spread a little bit too thin taking those auditions in the same week and I was exhausted. Yeah. And, you know, this was also while I was at New World and I remember there being stressful concerts going on around that. And so I think that was partially part of the problem mm -hmm. is just sort of human human error and not enough time, all the usual stuff. But one thing that I always like to talk about with auditions is the fact that this isn't like an objective process in every way. Mm -hmm. Obviously there are objective aspects of audition taking that you can control, like having objectively good pitch or objectively good rhythm or something like that. But beyond those few really truly, truly objective things, there's so much that goes into choosing a player. I mean, when I think about the six players that were in the finals for my job now, any one of them could have done the job yeah. absolutely beautifully. I'm, I'm certain of that. And a lot of them were English horn players from other orchestras that had been doing you know, mm -hmm. the job in other places. And I think we don't give enough credit to just the fact that people have different opinions. People like different sounds. People sure. have different ideas about music. And, you know, I think if your voice is the voice that they want to hear that day, then then it's a lucky thing. And if not, you know, you can play a flawless audition and to no fault of your own, not be successful in that way. So, All right. So, so an audition in general, it's, it's subjective. It's, yes. it, it's, yeah. it's based, it's all depends on, I mean, there's, there's so many variables. So how many days was the audition in total? So the New York Phil audition was kind of challenging in a way because it's it was spread out by a week. So I okay. flew, and actually I should mention that this English horn audition was less than a week after these two auditions that had been in the same week and were oboe auditions. And when I got done with those two, I just felt so dejected. And I was just like, the thought of preparing for another audition on another instrument was just so not what I wanted to be doing at the time. Yeah. But the preliminary round was on one day. And then, you know, I flew to New York for the live prelims. And then when I passed the prelims, I flew back to Miami and I had the week there. And then I flew back a week later and I played a semi-final round on English horn, a semi-final round on oboe, and then a final round the next day on English horn only. So it was a three-day process, but it was spread over like a week and a half. Mm -hmm. Were all the rounds behind a screen or did the screen come down at the end? The screen came down for the final round, but mm -hmm. every round up until then was screened, yeah. 
Yeah. So how was it? Were, were you always on stage or was like the prelim rounds in a different room? Yeah. So everything was on stage um, in Geffen Hall and the screen was, you know, your standard. Well, actually, I should sort of be specific here. I guess the screen was in the audience. It wasn't on stage. Yeah. Some auditions that I'd been to in the past, the screen is kind of right in front of your face on stage. That's the worst. I, I'm not a fan of that. Yeah, so yeah no, was, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it was really nice to have just space to play into and then yeah. just, you know, the little black curtain. But yeah, the last round was not screened. How many people on the panel? You know, I actually don't know the exact number. I would guess around 12-ish, Okay, somewhere yeah. around there. Was Yap? Yeah, Yap was there. The oboe section was there. Obviously, a lot of woodwind colleagues and a few string colleagues as well. Something yeah. that was interesting that I didn't realize until, or I guess I didn't find out until later was that the final round of all these auditions at the New York Phil are able to be audited by members of the orchestra. Um, obviously they don't vote, but they're able to kind of come and, and just see. It was actually, it was nice, you know, coming into my trial week and getting positive feedback from people who had just kind of come to listen. Um, mm -hmm. On the flip side of that, since I've been in the orchestra, I've been able to go and audit some auditions as well. And it's just a really, really cool experience. Did you get any feedback? I mean, did you? I mean, is it, does New York offer uh, feedback, or do uh, have you gotten feedback before? And if you have, how do you go about doing that? Because I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, what do I do? I don't know why you know didn't pass or whatever. Yeah, so I didn't get immediate feedback. In other words, I didn't get any feedback before my trial week. Mm -hmm. But when I had my first few rehearsals for my trial week, I definitely got you know, a few comments, constructive, really, you know, just positive, kind comments from uh, mostly woodwind players and also from the oboe section, just suggestions about how to, how to play well in the hall. I, the main thing, which is, oh, nice. yeah. which is, I think, something that a lot of people realize when they go from audition taking to being in the job is, I just have to play like five times as loud as I ever thought I would have to. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is like yeah. the, the classic sort of wind player dilemma. And Geffen Hall is a notoriously kind of muddy, um, yep. muddy hall to play in. And so you yeah. need a, an interesting combination of enough treble in your sound, enough projection, but also finding a way to keep your voice present within yeah. those constraints. Real quick, just kind of staying on the, the screen aspect, what are your thoughts on that? What are your, what are your beliefs on screens being up the whole time screens coming down i mean because that's this is i mean we are behind the screen i have a lot of conversations with a lot of people in different orchestras and it's it varies so much around the country yeah it's you know it's a really interesting topic to consider and i i feel for both sides you know i think a really common argument for having the screen come down is you know, I want to be able to see how someone engages with their instrument in a physical way, how, you know, mm -hmm. how someone performs. I mean, it's hard to watch someone perform when you when you can't see them. Um, and I, I totally understand that aspect of it. My personal opinion, I think that the cons um, kind of outweigh the pros in terms of pulling the screen down. So I'm an advocate yeah. for keeping the screen up all the way through the process. Um, it just gets rid of any room for bias, whether it's, you know, racial or gender based or yeah. doesn't leave any room for nepotism or any of this stuff that kind of inherently creeps in. And when I say yeah. inherently, I do, or when I say creeps in rather, I mean, 
a lot of times these, you know, we have good intentions when we're listening behind the screen, but you know, if someone studied with your teacher, for example, you're just going to listen in a different way, knowing that, you know, or if you've heard that person before and you think, Oh, well, you know, they didn't have a great day today, but I know that they can do better yeah. or something like that. It just erases all those possibilities. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. It's, it is a conversation that, you know, has, has been going on for, for a while. And I think it's now just starting to really kind of take shape and, and, and orchestras are, are starting to change their practices, you know, not as quickly, I think as, as many people would like, but in the, in the orchestral world, I don't think things move very fast. It's kind of a glacier speed (laughs) a lot of times. So listen, I, you know, you talked about your pact. I, I remember very well, I have to say, um, your audition run at New World, <laughs> because I was the one that uh, that let you go. Yes. Yeah. So, but I am curious because I have so many fellows from New World Symphony submit time offs, audition time offs for two different orchestras, back to back, completely different lists, and I always ask them, "Is you, are you sure you want to do that?" You know. So. Your advice to those people that that want to do back to back auditions. I mean, I know I, obviously there have been people that have won auditions, but my or back to back auditions. But I don't think it's really a recipe for for success. What do you What do you think? I think you know. I guess this is sort of a non answer, but I I do really think it kind of depends on the scenario and kind of depends on the person as well. I I do believe that if I had a magical read, for example, let's put it this Mm -hmm. way. If I had the read I had for my Chicago audition and there were an audition a week after that Chicago audition, I would have felt confident that things would have gone well for me, for example, you know, Mm -hmm. this, I guess it was just, I, you know, I had more time to prepare for that audition. It was my first audition. So I wasn't caught up in the mental aspect of it, but I would say if you have enough time and you feel like you're on a roll, go for it. Also being in the zone, once you have your, once you have your first audition out of the way, if you feel like it goes well, then maybe the second audition that's three days later might go as well. But you know, if the first one is terrible and the one you care about more is two days later. I don't know. You know, you have to be the kind of person that can look on the bright side in that scenario. I guess so. Yeah. You did mention the magic read scenario too. Uh, So Ryan is our first guest. That's a, a double read player. And I would sort of in, include clarinet players in the read talk, but a lot of them buy boxes and boxes. It's not the same thing as like crafting them yourself. So when you said that, I, it's something I'd actually, oddly enough, not really considered that much in our conversations prior to this because the read is such a variable and it's so specific to just a few instruments. Did you feel like you had magic read number two for New York Phil? Yeah, honestly, um, I, I, I did. Yeah, I did feel like I had a really special read. And the thing about finding that special read is that it's so hard to, to match everything to a list of excerpts that's so diverse. I mean, if you have normally, especially on English horn, you make the read for the solo. You have one big solo in a night. And if you're playing, you know, Roman Carnival, that's one thing. If you're playing Dvorak 9, that's another thing. If you're playing Ein Heldenleben, that's another thing. And they really require completely different skill sets in a lot of ways and, and different qualities in the read. Finding one read that kind of fits all of those scenarios is a big challenge. And I think it does take a, just a magical 
special sort of, you know, once in a blue moon read to achieve something. Do you bring multiple reads on stage with you for an audition? Specifically for those solos, like change them out or something? So it, it, I've tried that in the past. Um, this is, I'm glad you asked that. That's question. a great question. And yeah, oboe players and English horn players go back and forth. I've heard people that say, I would never change a read in an audition. And I know people that change after every three excerpts. Mm. Um, in the, my New York Phil audition, I did not change reads. I played actually the same read for every single round as well. Oh, wow. Um, but you played the same read the week before you came back for the semis and finals? Yeah, I did. Oh, wow. Yeah. But at that time, when I played it for the prelims, it was pretty much brand new. I mean, I had maybe done a few run-throughs of a few excerpts on it, but I knew that it was going to do everything I wanted it to, so I kind of put it away at that point. But in the past, I have tried switching between reads, um, you know, in different excerpts. And luckily, when I tried this, I was a student at Juilliard. We have, like, you know, semester placement auditions. And it went horribly. I will not lie to you. It was the worst idea. <laughs> There's a lot that can go wrong switching reads, especially if you're nervous. Yeah. yeah. You know, it you could fumble one. Drop it on the floor or something like that. For people that, because I not honestly, I know a very little bit about reads, but uh, help us understand for our, us non-read players. Okay, my first question is, how long does a read last? So it's a good question. Um, it really depends on the strength of the cane. I would say generally between maybe 10 and 15 hours of playing, some magical oh. reads will will last for longer than that, and some honestly will last for a lot shorter. So it mm -hmm. really depends. But I would say 10 hours of playing is a good sort of middle ground. English horn reads last significantly longer than oboe reads too, I should mention. Oh, English horn, they last longer? Yeah. Because, because they're bigger or yeah, they're thicker? They're, they're bigger and thicker and just stronger, you know, from being larger. They also are supported. The opening is supported by a wire, whereas on in, uh, oh. on oboe, we don't usually have wires on our oboe reads in America. Who knew? Yeah. This is fascinating. Yes. But you guys spend <laughs> you guys spend hours. I'm telling you, I, and I know, I know this just because of, of a previous life, and I've seen the amount of time that you dedicate making reads. It's literally half of your practicing is making reads. Yeah, I would venture to say for myself, it's actually probably more than half. Um, wow. So at least more than half in terms of hours spent. But I really, I come from a school of thought that when you have a read that allows you to do everything, you just have complete musical freedom. And that's why yeah. we spend so much time you know, figuring out how to craft this, this quote unquote perfect read, you know, to have that feeling as often as possible. Are there different schools of read making? There are many, 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 many different schools within America. There's, you know, again, it's specifics, you know, to sort certain major players, you could say. Um, but in Europe, for example, their reads are completely different looking than ours. French reads are different than English reads, and those mm. reads are different than reads they might play in Russia or in China. Um, <laughs> read making has developed in a really interesting way in lots of different countries, and um, that's sort of one of the main reasons for the divide between oboe in Europe and in America is that yeah. they play on such completely different reads that you know most Americans can't even make a sound on a European read and, and vice versa. And so you, so when you're, when you're going to go take an audition, you, you 
So each orchestra has has a sound, right? Yeah. Yeah. So are you making a read to kind of match that sound of the orchestra? And like, how do you prepare for that? Like, are you listening to recordings of the orchestra? Like how many recordings of New York Phil did he listen to before taking that audition? I, I listened I listened to a lot and I actually had the opportunity to sub with them a few times, which was hugely, hugely, hugely That's helpful. That's gotta be yeah, it's gonna um, be helpful, yeah. Never on English horn, but on, on oboe a few times. And it was just really, really eye opening to see how, how people played in that you know, in that setting. But in terms of tailoring your read to the sound of the orchestra, this question makes me sort of think of a a general thought that I have about audition taking, which is, you know, sort of how much of your personal voice to mm -hmm. alter or shift one way or the other to to fit the the aesthetic or the you know the preferences of a wind section. Yeah, and it's a tough question. Um, in my heart, I believe that my concept of sound and my you know my concept of vibrato as well, and just my playing in general was really really influenced by um, the general sound of the New York Phil, which is sort of mm -hmm. really big, first of all, and yeah. and rich. And, I, you know, I don't mean to apply all of these things to my playing, but basically what I'm trying to say is I think I got lucky in the sense that it was just a good fit. Um, but, you know, and that could have also been the reason why I didn't make it past the first round in, in, in some of these other auditions is that it just wasn't the right sound. Yeah, you don't want to compromise yourself in order to fit in. Like you said, you have to be true to yourself. You have to play the way that you know how to play. You have to express how, things that you want to express. And if they like it, great. If not, they'll find someone else. You know, that, yeah. that does fit their, their idea. So I am curious, though, because you were talking about, like, New York Phil, their big sound. They're renovating Geffen yes. Hall. Yes, yes. You think that's going to change their sound? Because I'm, I mean, listen, I've heard New York Phil, and I'm wondering if they have such a big sound in order to project through that, that hall. Yeah, it's a really good question, and it's interesting because before everything got shut down, we um, had a rehearsal where we sort of taped off the. They extended the stage forward. Oh, oh gosh, I don't know if I'm actually allowed to say this stuff. Oh, nobody's listening. Well, actually, it's no, just us. no. I'm pretty sure that that plan was in, you know, in an article somewhere. But anyway, the stage moving forward significantly and we had one rehearsal where they built the stage out into the audience and they taped off where we would theoretically be sitting in the future and it was a big difference but i think it was a really positive change my feeling is that for wind players especially it's not always fun to have to play as loud as you possibly can yeah i can't imagine yeah in a lot of ways you know the the playing that we cultivate for auditions is kind of the most versatile and flexible and and supple and you know sensitive and then when we try to meet the challenges of the hall we try not to sacrifice anything but it's always sort of a battle between the two sides of delicacy right. yeah, there's and the, the balance yeah yeah but it'll be different uh, yeah it will so you know i kind of want to just go back you you were talking about those two auditions that you took that you didn't you didn't advance but also, like you went, so I'm I'm always I'm always fascinated by what's the what's the process after the audition? How do you cope? How do you move on? How do you like just like after you like completely don't play whatever it is? You, you can you, say you don't bomb. Advance, I definitely bombed the second one. <laughs> screwed the pooch I can't, on I one, and, uh, <laughs> and so like like but yeah, but how do you how do you come back from like what what do you do specifically? I think again, this all sort of contributes to the like idea that everything kind of just fit in place with this New York Phil audition, but it just so happened that after um, 
that second audition that just went really terribly, I had a week off at New World. And I remember coming back and just being like, gosh, I don't want to do anything. I have to prepare for this New York Phil audition. But that was kind of the only thing on my plate. And after um, the preliminary audition, my friend from Finland was actually staying with me at New World for the entire week. And so I, you know, I just had all these sort of welcome distractions and I was forced mm -hmm. to, to schedule my practice time into really planned out blocks and I found a, you know, a good balance during that time. I'm not sure if that answered your question directly. No, no, but. absolutely. Yeah, it does. Yeah, because, I mean, it's hard. You know, our industry is one that you are going to probably get more rejection than you do, you you get wins. So it's, I'm always just curious, like, like people, you know, they talk about, I mean, I've, look, I've taken my fair share of auditions and I've self-destructed after losing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I'd like to people to avoid doing that, you know, but like you said, it does, there is something that happens where things just kind of line up. But I am curious though, it's not just, you can't just be an amazing player. You can't just, hope is not a, a recipe for success. So what is your, what's your routine when you were preparing? I know you said you didn't have much time, but you had, you have a routine, I would imagine. And you, a way to practice to make sure that things, that these excerpts are to the highest level that they can be. It's funny because I, when, whenever I get asked about my practice habits, which I, you know, I know isn't di maybe directly what you're asking, but I just want to go on a tangent really quickly. Yeah, please. <laughs> when I get asked about my practice habits, I kind of claim up a little bit because I am not the most regular practicer. I'm not the person who wakes up and practices from 7.30 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. and then eats breakfast and goes on a run and then comes back and practices from 12 p.m. to, you know, I just find that if I have to set my life up in that way, I constantly disappoint myself. <laughs> and it, This and is it, great, though. This is good to hear. People yeah, need to hear this. It, it makes me um, sort of resentful of my, <laughs> you know, my abilities to, to keep to a schedule. So I practice... Um, First of all, you know, more when I need to and I'm, mm -hmm. when I'm preparing for something and a little bit less when I'm not. So that's just, first of all, general practice habits. In terms of specifically preparing music for auditions, um, one thing that I owe 100% to my teacher, Elaine Duas, is just sort of the, this ability to understand how to prepare an orchestral part. Mm -hmm. We at Juilliard, our oboe course curriculum is so, so, so um, comprehensive and we don't learn just the excerpts, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. This is considered a bad word in Juilliard Oboe Studio. Okay, um, good to know. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll refrain from saying that around Elaine. <laughs> we we learn the entire piece because when you play the piece, you play the whole piece. And you know, even when you play the excerpt, knowing what came right before and knowing what is happening underneath and what comes right after is so completely vital to understanding any stretch of music that's lifted from the page. So. Um, on a more practical level, I listen to as many recordings as I can of every work. I have a Spotify playlist for every audition I've taken, and it just I play it constantly. Mm -hmm. And I do any sort of necessary historical research, you know, maybe the excerpts from a ballet that was turned into an opera, or an opera that was turned into a you know ballet, or this or that. Yeah. Or, you know, you have to sort of understand what the context of the piece is, and also it's always important to know other pieces by these composers. Okay. You know, if you find some oddball excerpt, and I remember actually the first time I found an excerpt by Respighi, it was this piece called The Dove, 
um, from the birds. And I had honestly never heard anything else by Respighi, and it was such a beautiful piece. But I didn't, I felt, I didn't feel like I truly understood this piece in the context of his writing until I listened to lots of other stuff. So there's a lot of research that goes in. It's not just sitting down and mindlessly practicing all these notes. It's an academic process yeah. in a way. That yeah, you've got to, you've got to be well rounded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's so much. I mean. There's a lot, obviously, there's a lot of work that goes into taking an audition and just finding the time in order to do all this kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm also not one that would wake up and be very regimented or anything like that, which is why I do what I do now. And I'm not where you are, <laughs> but, but it's, it, it is fascinating to me, like how people, how people prepare. I mean, I think it is important for, for people to realize that there are many different ways, whatever fits within your abilities i mean you know some people are you know eight hours in a practice room and other people aren't it's just you know i think it's good to, good for people to know that it doesn't necessarily there isn't one set recipe for 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 winning right, right. yeah but you you play piano right i do yes do you think that you think that learning that that other because you started when you were pretty young playing piano yeah, I started piano when I was five, and if I can just anticipate your question, I, I think that it hugely, hugely, hugely affects the way that um, I've thought about music for my entire life. It also, circling back to the question you asked me about how I recover from a bad audition, mm -hmm. one thing I forgot to mention is that sometimes the oboe just feels so frustrating because there's such a huge barrier between just you and making a sound. I mean, you have to spend literally hours crafting this little piece of wood that might splinter into a million pieces at the, you know, change of humidity or something. Yeah. There's just so much that goes into just making a sound on a basic level that sometimes I feel so far away from music. I feel, you know, like a carpenter just trying to turn out all these reeds to be able to sound the way I want to sound. And one thing that has really, really, really helped me overcome that is you know, continuing my studies on piano and just being able to go into a practice room and play music and just click a key and, and a, you know, instant note gratification. comes out, instant gratification. So that's that's been a big way f to help me sort of stay connected to why I love doing this in the first place. Yeah. Do you do meditation? Do you yoga? Do you, do you play sports? I don't do yoga. I don't meditate. Sports... I feel like if you don't play sports growing up, it's weird to say that you play sports later, but I exercise. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, um, I do exercise regularly, and I think that that's been a really big way for me to sort of just relieve stress. It's also yeah. a fun thing to do with, uh, you know, I, I find that a lot of musicians are really into their exercise regimens. and I think more so now. I think more so now than, than maybe, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, health is, is a lot more important to people nowadays than they were when I was growing up. Back when JT and I were freelancing together, there wasn't anyone exercising, I'll tell you no. that much. No, we were exercising <laughs> at the bar after the gig, which again, probably is why we're doing what we're doing, and you are where you are. Um, <laughs> I realized that I've wanted to add something to the, again, to the question of how you recover from a bad audition. It's something yeah, that please. I think is probably number one overall, the stuff I said before. One of the best ways, I think, to recover from a bad audition is being able to do it in the company of friends. And that's sort of one of the very few beautiful things about being on the so-called audition train and just mm -hmm. going around and taking an audition after audition is that you really do form a community of people that 
you know, obviously are going for the same jobs and striving for the same goals, but also have, you know, the empathy and the experience to really understand what it feels like to not advance out of a preliminary round of an audition. And when I when I took those two bad auditions, I took both of them with my two other colleagues at New World, James Riggs and Emily Bear. And I think in one of the auditions, one of them advanced and the other one, the other one advanced and I didn't advance it either. There was something like that, but it was a it was a mixed bag between the three yeah. of us. And honestly, it was so amazing just having them there. We flew together on the plane and you know just having that sort of sense of community amongst all the audition taking people uh is something that yeah that's yeah a silver lining auditions in general you are it's it's so stressful it's you have so much there's so much adrenaline that goes on there's so much you know i mean it's just it's you're you're uber focused you have you're tight you're this you're that you know and then afterwards you know you're on the stage for 10 15 minutes and then all of a sudden it's over you're like where's the release? What do you do? You know? So yeah, yeah, like you said, it is, that is nice that you had, you had your friend and you guys, you guys studied together at Juilliard, right? I actually didn't overlap directly with James, but I, Emily and I spent a a few years at Juilliard together and I knew James through Aspen. We had done music festivals together. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, we all knew each other before, before we came to New World together. When were you at Aspen? I was at Aspen for four years, actually, from 2000, uh, the summer, I guess, of 2015 to, oh. no, sorry, 14 to 18. Yeah. 14 was my last summer I was there. Yes. Did I know that? Did we know? Did we talk about that? I don't know. I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> I was the manager of orchestral operations, so I did. I worked with with Elaine and in the winds and did all the rotations and stuff like that, winds and brass and strings and Who knew? yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it was my basically my four years of undergrad, which were yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay, so now you've won the job. You're in your tenure process. How long is the tenure process? Have they given you tenure? Did they well, just say, you know what, you're <laughs> awesome. We're just going to go ahead and give it to you. Thanks to coronavirus. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, so I, I mean, my tenure date would have been, I believe, in March of 2021. But because of the work stoppage, they're basically the union decided, on behalf of the New York Phil, to delay all the new people's yeah. tenure by the amount of time that we're, you know, that we're there. Um, so basically, if if so, when you come back, you'll start back. Yeah. With yeah. You know, the time I'll that you start back so, on March 16th or whatever yeah. where I left. So off. it's a is it a two year is it a two year process? It's an 18 month process only. Actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's it's a shorter process. Are you getting feedback from the committee and there are you you know what what is their process? So there's a series of um, I guess tenure review meetings they're called. Uh-huh. Um, I have not had one yet. <laughs> I was supposed to have one again, you know, okay. just after concerts were stopped. But I feel lucky that I have a really good relationship with a lot of people in the wind section. So I, if I feel like I have a question about something or if, if someone feels like they want to express something to me, I think the communication is open enough that, you know, we don't have to yeah. wait for a meeting necessarily. But that's nice. who knows? Yeah, Maybe there's things that I'm not being told that, <laughs> that they're waiting for the meeting for. But, you know, it's, yeah, that's how it works generally. So now that you're... You're not performing right now with Nero. Phil, what are you doing? What are you What are you doing to keep up uh, keep up your chops? Keep up the drive? Is there anything specific? Are you Are you playing every day? Not playing? It's Maybe been that's... sort of a mixed bag, and it definitely has been a challenge. Um, when I first arrived, I was feeling super motivated for about a month, and I made some videos that I put out on the New York Field channel, and mm-hmm. we were being encouraged to like create a lot of content. And so I did some big projects for that, and I. 
you know, was making reads and practicing every day. And then I kind of fell into a little bit of a slump. And yeah. I allowed myself to fall into that slump of not really doing anything because it occurred to me that, as I mentioned before, I've been playing piano since I was really young. And I have been studying piano really, really seriously since I was, you know, I started when I was five, but I started competing and, you know, from an early age. And I just, I don't remember the last time that I had nothing to do, like literally nothing on my schedule. And so I thought this seems like a moment in my life where it might actually be a good time to kind of just recharge. Um, I agree. Yep. So I'm coming out of that recharging process now. I'm doing a lot of teaching over Zoom and um, working on some collaborations with uh, friends and, and colleagues. And yeah, generally just trying to find ways to inspire myself. That's that's the hardest thing. I mean, it's I'm I'm not used to having to do the work of inspiring myself. Yeah. I'm usually just inspired by my you know, my colleagues and my surroundings and having, you know, an amazing program to play that week. But now it kind of all has to come from within, which is, which is tough. It is tough. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of people always say, you know, oh, musicians are they're just so creative and this and that. And I'm like, I'm not one of those. It's hard, you know, because I mean, for me as a violist and as a strictly an orchestral violist, I mean, you, you, I go and you get the music and you, and you, and you, you play what's on the page and you're, you're told what to play, et cetera. You know, for you, it's a little different English horn, you're a solo instrument, but you know, a lot of, a lot of players, they're not, they, it's hard to start. It's hard to get that spark. Yeah. Uh, and I actually was just having a conversation with my friend who was an oboist, but has a very multifaceted career that's only sort of partly orchestral. Mm -hmm. um, and I was saying how I thought that my creative brain had sort of atrophied over time <laughs> from lack of use. Right. Because, you know, when you're on this path, you know, from, from my, I guess from like when I was in middle school, I just, I knew for my entire life that I was going to be a classical musician as a mm -hmm. profession. There was never a question about it. I never doubted um, that that was what course my life would take. And mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, it was a really straight shot. And so this was sort of the first time where I really had to do the kind of thinking that honestly, most college people, you know, or a lot of people my age have to do, which is sitting down and thinking, what opportunities can I create for myself? What yeah am I interested in what, you know, makes, what inspires me, what makes me motivated and, and, and sort of just having to consider, you know, how I can build my own life rather than just yeah. following this sort of trajectory that I had been on for my entire life. Um, it was it's an a, interesting it's time, a humbling though, right? experience. Yes. Yeah, really it's, it's an interesting time. time. It, it, it makes you wonder how, what the future is going to hold as far as, you know, music, and performing and being on stage and are we going to be completely virtual How, this this pandemic if nothing else is, has changed the way that people will start to uh, go to concerts if they go back to concerts yeah I'm, i mean i'm really hoping that one of the positive things if there are any positive things that can come out of this is that the kind of creative thinking that people are being forced to engage in right now will continue on you know, after things yeah. have opened up and, and people will start to imagine different ways of presenting concerts just for that, you know, for the sake of doing it. Um, and it's fascinating to me to see these people that are being so creative that you would never know in a normal day. Like, you they, you know, you don't, they, they come, they show up, they play, you know, they do whatever, and then they leave. You don't have very much interaction with them. And all of a sudden you see them playing, you're like, oh my God, 
yeah. they're doing that. That's amazing. So yeah. it does, and it also gives a lot of skill to to people that maybe you know learning some a new skill. Yeah. It's funny we are having this conversation right now because I'm sort of distracted. I can hear my wife a little bit through the studio door. She's in front of a green screen in the living room. She's an actress, and she's doing a virtual gala tonight for City Theater, um, which is a group that performs at the Arts Center in the the summer down here. Mm-hmm. And um, the thought of this virtual gala thing happening four or five months ago, I never would have believed it. Right. And now here we are. Yeah. Well, cool. Listen, Ryan, I don't want to keep. It. I know. I know you're you're busy creating. <laughs> in, in LA but look this was really great I'm so glad <laughs> yeah they, they, they can't see you Ryan right I was giving quotation marks <laughs> creating it's like I'm really really busy uh, I have plans to go sit on my front lawn and uh, hey, sun, suntan but those are good plans <laughs> I, I wish I could do it but look we you know I we really appreciate you you know, coming on and talking about about the audition process, your process. You know, just just in general, we I definitely want to. You know, if you're if you're up for it, we'll have you back because we can continue talking about this. But uh, I would love to. Thanks for having me. When we get back started again, we'll have you back, and we'll find out more about the whole the whole tenure and how that's going. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Again, thank you for for being with us on behind the screen. And uh, yeah, great to talk to you. Great to see you again, too. Yeah.